All right, Exodus 17, verse 1. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after they, their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for them to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide you with me? Wherefore do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this, that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and all of our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, actually where he smote the, uh, the Red Sea. Take in thy hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, that's a mount right there. And thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come forth, there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the charting of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now in this passage, y'all, right here, I want us to try to take a step back and look at the whole big picture. You have a people, the nation of Israel. They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're murmuring. God's already been good to them. He's already part of the Red Sea. He's already brought them out with a mighty outstretched arm of God. And it's instituted the Passover and did so many miracles for them. And he's brought them out miraculously. And yet they came to a, their first place of real difficulty. And they complained and murmured and grumbled. Now they had a real need. Water is a legitimate need. We talked I think last Sunday morning, a person could live maybe, you know, three or four or five days without water, tops, or, you know, and, and so this was a legitimate need. It wasn't the fact that they were grumbling and complaining about, oh, you know, we don't have uh, nice new clothes, or, you know what I'm saying, or nice luxurious houses to stay in. There was a legitimate need, is all I'm saying, but they were complaining, and they were murmuring, and they were assaulting God's character. Why did God bring us out here in the wilderness? He wants to kill us, okay? That is not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Israel. They misunderstood. They misspoke. We've, we've talked about it in Hebrews on Wednesday nights. They failed to enter into the promised land because of unbelief. This is one of their many complainings in the wilderness. So in the big picture, you have people. And the people right here is the nation of Israel, and they're complaining. In the big picture also, you have God, the God of Israel, who's watching all this and listening to this. And let me ask, is this the, the God of Israel, Jehovah, is He able to meet their needs? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Is He willing to meet their needs? Absolutely. Is He a good God? Or just some cold, uh, kind of cruel God like the God of Islam or something that just you just better be on His good side? No, He's, he's merciful. I'm just going to read a scripture. You don't have to turn there. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And that is the kindness. That's pity is like a real tender compassion, like a father to a child. When your child's sick and you just wish I could trade places with them, when they're a little baby and they're crying and crying and they can't do anything to help themselves and they're hurting and you know they're hurting and, and you just move with compassion. How much more our Heavenly Father, okay? He's kind and He's good. The Bible says of Jesus in the, in the New Testament that when you see the crowds of people and He was concerned about them, and it says He was actually moved with compassion because to Him they were like a, sh a flock of sheep 
scattered with no shepherd. And he was moved with compassion. I'm just giving you those scriptures to say, are we got a complaining people with a real need. We have a kind God who's able and desiring to meet their needs. And in between the two, you have a man who's Moses. We, have, we see a person who's just flesh and blood like you and me, but he knew God, he walked with God, he trusted God, he feared God, and he was in a position of being between God and men. He was like an intercessor or a mediator between men and God. And, and in that context, he was a type of Christ. You understand when I say that? He wasn't Jesus. He showed a, a type of Christ, just like Isaac when, when uh, he carried the wood and, and Abraham was about to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. He, and God said, withheld him from doing that, but he was Isaac is a type of Christ in that sense, okay? And that's all I'm saying here. Moses is standing as a mediator between God and, and a grumbling people that he loves and that he's chosen for himself. And they're complaining, and Moses is that intercessor, so he's a type of Christ. Now in this right here, we see in verse, uh, verse 6, Behold, I will stand before thee upon the, the rock. So the Lord's saying, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be right before you. And I want you, thou shalt smite the rock with that staff. The same one he smote the waters with when they parted. And there's going to come water out of the rock. And the Bible says that Moses did so. Now, 38 years later, I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 20. In the same desert, the same group of people, Remember, they're dying out little by little. This is 38 years later, most Bible scholars say. And y'all, they're back in the... They, they wandered and wandered. And they're back in the same desert at the same place, basically. And guess what? We're going to start reading in verse 23. And it says... Numbers 20... I'm sorry, verse 1. Numbers 21 through 3. Then came the children of Israel, even, unto the, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people showed with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our, when our brethren died before the Lord? And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into the wilderness that we should, and our cattle should die? So they're there and they're grumbling and complaining. Skip down to... Uh, Verse 6, And Moses and Aaron went out from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces. Aren't you glad there are people that will stand in the gap for us? They were complaining and, and didn't know their left hand from their right hand. They didn't know what they were doing. It's like Jesus saying, forgive them on the cross. They don't know what they're doing when they're hurling curses and accusations against the Lord. And, and here's Moses and Aaron. And they fall on their faces before the Lord. And at the door, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, it says, And the glory of the Lord appeared unto them, so God met with them. He was pleased with them. He was answering their prayers. He was meeting with them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the, the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye. Now this is interesting. He says, Speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink 
Let's stop right there for just a second. The Bible tells us, and you don't have to turn there, but I want to read the scripture um, in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, and they did all drink that same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. I just love the, you don't have to guess. We don't have to, you know, get somebody and we'll get a thousand different opinions and try to see who can win the argument. The Bible tells us, okay, the Lord was with them. That rock that they drank from, the living water, the water came from, and so much, there's so many symbolic things there. They all drank of that rock, and that rock was Christ. So the Bible tells us that. So here we see the first time, 38 years before, go and smite the rock, and he did. 38 years later, they're wandering around. They're back in the same place. A lot of people have died since then. A lot have been born since then. And in the wilderness, and they're thirsty again, and they had the same thing. They wanted to stone Moses. God's unfaithful. God's not good. He's a wicked God. He brought us out here simply to kill us. We're going to die of thirst. And all my poor little children out here in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron fall on their faces before God. God meets with them. He tells them what to do. He goes, speak to the rock, Moses. Get the people gathered together and speak to the rock. And it says here, um, And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. So he's doing what God said. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, so God was faithful to send it. And the congregation drank, and their beasts also. So something's different this time, right? Something is different. He, he tells them, speak to it this time. And it's like Moses, he's saying, listen, you bunch of rebels. It was like he was taking it personally. And, and I'm sure it was personal. You know, they want to stone him. But still, he kind of got out of himself a little bit. He got outside of what he was supposed to do. And he said, must we fetch you water out of this rock? He didn't, wasn't said, God didn't tell him to say all that. And God didn't tell him to hit the rock, and he certainly didn't say to hit it twice. He said, speak to it, and it shall give forth his water. He's going to bring it forth. And so Moses takes it, must we fetch you water? Bam, bam, he looks like a superhero or something. He's smiting this rock twice. And the water comes out. And look what's happened, what the Lord says about this. And the Lord spake unto Moses, verse 12, and Aaron, because you believe me not, wow, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. They, in, uh, we're just going to stop there. There was a consequence to this. It looks like a little thing. And God did send the water. Because he loved Moses and Aaron, he loved all the people, and he wanted to take care of them, okay? He sent forth the water. But we see in Moses something that you don't, wouldn't expect to see. I mean, honestly, we read a lot about Moses in the Bible, right? All through Exodus, we read about his whole life, being born as a baby, and all the choices he made that were godly and right. And, um, and yet we see something in him that we wouldn't expect to see. The Bible says, now, the man Moses was very meek, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. God says that about him, okay? But in this instance, he got, he sinned. He got 
outside of himself. We, it wasn't, maybe we wouldn't think it's not as bad as making a golden calf and, you know, doing all the stuff that the people did. He certainly wasn't like that, but this was a sin. It was a transgression against the Lord. And I'm gonna, you don't have to turn there, but later in Moses' life, when he's about to die, and the Lord, he goes up on the mountain and God buries him. The Bible says that the Lord buried Moses up on that mountain, overlooking the promised land, and Joshua took over and brought the people in. But it says, this is what the Lord said to Moses at that time, at the end of his life, because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen, because you sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. There was a consequence to it, even with this godly man. Did God still love Moses? Absolutely. Is Moses in heaven today? Absolutely. You understand what I'm saying? This, this is just, the, the reason we're talking about this today is simply this. We wouldn't expect to see that. I wouldn't. Knowing what we know about Moses all through his life, Okay, you just wouldn't expect that, especially late in his life, especially after 38 years in the wilderness, putting up with these rebels that he put up with, and God doing so many miracles, they would complain. And there was other times, you know, the matter of Korah, when they challenged Moses' authority and so forth, and the earth opened up and swallowed a bunch of them. There was different things, and Moses just steadfast, humble, meek, trusting God, falling on his face before God. Uh, he went up on the mountain twice and got the Ten Commandments and so forth. But uh, two questions, and we're going to talk about this morning. How and why was this in Moses? What was going on? And second, and probably more importantly to what we're talking about this morning, why does the Bible record that? In other words, why, why does the Bible tell us about one of his failures? If he's like a hero of the faith, which he is, and a man of God that we're to admire and kind of use for an example and so forth not only do we see it not only was it in him but the lord is not hesitant to in his word put that eternally for everybody to see and i don't think it's to embarrass moses remember moses is, is a type of christ why do we see it because moses is the is the man for example that uh, it says in Hebrews, commending his faith, when he came of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction of the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. The Bible says he endured a sin him was invisible. He had respect for the recompense of reward. He esteemed the, the riches of the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. I mean, that's a mouthful. And, and that's the man Moses that we're talking about. So why does the Lord let it? What, what was this in Moses that allowed him to do that? Smite the rock twice, take it kind of upon himself, like I'm getting you water out of this rock. And why does the Bible record it? And, and I believe the answer is right here. I want you to turn, not specifically Moses, but the answer to this question is in Colossians chapter one. I want you to turn there, Colossians chapter one. Verse 18 and 19. And this is really what we're talking about this morning. It's going to be this thought right here. Colossians 1.18. Speaking of Jesus, and He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. What, what am I saying? I, I believe... 
William and I were talking about this a week or so ago. Why does the Lord, why do you see some godly men like Moses and then maybe towards the end of their life, at some point in their life, you'll see some sinful thing that you didn't expect? And the answer is this. It's what we're talking about on Wednesday night because Jesus Christ is better. And because the Lord doesn't want us to idolize any man of the faith. Because between that man, Moses, and Jesus, there's an impassable gulf. And Moses, as godly as he is, is never going to be the Lord. Because in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It's about Jesus. And God wants us to know it's about Jesus. And yes, Moses was a type of Christ. And we see things in Abraham. It was justified by faith. And we see things in other men and women of, the God, of, of God through the Bible that we see traits of Christ and evidences of the Lord at work in their lives and a love for God and a faith in God. But between those godly people and the Lord Himself, the Son of God, the Son of Man, there's an impassable gulf that cannot be crossed other than Jesus laying down His life. He is forever God, and He is forever the Lord. And so we see God allows us to see, I believe, these faults in the men of God that I'm not one thousandth of the man of God that Moses was, or Abraham, or Daniel, or Joshua, or these people, but we see the, the gap between them and the Lord is, is so great because the Lord is better. And Almighty God wants us to set His part a son, set His Son apart from all others. Because guess what? These men are men and they're not God. Men are men and they're not God. They can be godly men that trust in the Lord, and they can be wicked men that that you know reject Christ and, and everything in between but men are men and they're not God and we see it all through the scriptures we see holy men and women of God mighty men and women of God and we esteem them I esteem Moses I do lift him up I don't put him up where the Lord is though but I do admire him we esteem these people and we should we praise them in the sense of how they their faith and how they walk with God we admire them. We ins we're, they inspire us. We learn about their lives. We teach them in Sunday school. We teach others. Or maybe when we're going through a hard time, we'll use one of them as an example. How uh, Job and all he went through. And we'll, we'll say, wow, I'm sure not going through what Job went through. And it'll encourage us because his life, right? And so that's, that's well and fine. And we should. We use them for examples. But Jesus Christ stands alone. Amen. Jesus Christ uh, is better. And the Word of God gives us insight into these people's lives. So many what I would call heroes of the faith, fathers of the faith, and we could start listing them. You can start with people like Noah. Because in Noah's day, all flesh, the Bible says, had corrupted itself. The Lord looked and He said, it's all corrupted. All human flesh has corrupted itself. And, and, and He says, but Noah, you have I seen righteous in my sight and in this generation you found grace in my eyes and there's a man you're just like wow on the whole planet all flesh had corrupted but God saw Noah and he says you Noah have I seen righteous in my sight and he makes this covenant with him right and, and him and his family get on the ark but what happens to Noah later in life after the ark after the flood after he comes off and offers a sacrifice to God and God sets his rainbow in the sky and makes a new covenant with them and tells him to replenish the earth with his sons he gets drunk and it was a sin you say well his sons did it to him and so forth he, he drank it he knew what he was doing it was a sin with his sons it was a sin with him 
And you say, wow, the Lord allows us to see that. People like Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, all through the Bible, David, Samuel, Daniel, Elijah, Elisha, I'm just writing, I wrote down a bunch, John the Baptist, the Apostle John, Peter, Paul, Deborah, Rahab, Esther, Sarah. And we read about their faith, and we read about their walk with God, and we read about the trials they went through and how they trusted God, personal struggles in their lives, God's faithfulness. But we see times, at certain times in their lives, the Lord allows us to see a weakness. He allows us to see a sin. He allows us to see maybe more than one and maybe notable things, like in David's life, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, Moses smiting the rock twice. There was just some pride in that. And the Bible says, records, when the Bible writes it about you, that's a pretty amazing thing, that he was the most meek man of all the men on the face of the earth. Meek is a good thing. It's a godly trait. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Meekness. And the Bible records of Moses that he was the most meek man on the face of the earth. But in that moment, he wasn't, was he? It was like he was fed up with it himself. It was a personal thing. I'm fed up with it. God was still bearing patiently with these people, right? But Moses was fed up with it. He was sick of them threatening him to stone him. He was sick of them doubting God. God's been all it might have been a, a holy, you know, in some sense a righteous indignation or whatever, but he sinned against the Lord. Because he took it upon himself and he smote the rock. And the Lord, the, the Bible allows us to see that. We see their failures. We see, and he didn't go into the promised land because of it. We see their uh, humanity. We see their frailty. We see sin. We see unbelief. We see poor choices that they make in life. We see pride. We see disobedience. We see uh, temper that gets out of control. These are things that are common to us as well, right? You notice some of the things on the list. Um, we see lust. We see carnality. David, after he had been a young boy, just a worshiper of God as a shepherd boy on the hillside, and then God shows him to be king, and he's killed Goliath, and he's, he's stood in the face of Saul and all these different things. We see him later in life getting lax, maybe, in, in the, the issue with with Bathsheba when he's time though the kings were at war, but he wasn't at war this time. He's bathing, you know, looking off the balcony and, and ends up uh, committing adultery and having a Bathsheba's husband killed. We see unbelief in, with the man of faith who the Bible holds up as our example. Abraham was justified by faith, right? And we see unbelief in his life at, at a point. This didn't characterize Abraham's life, but at least in one matter, with uh, when, he, when he'd gone on for a long time after the promise of God that you're going to be a father of many nations and he still didn't have children after so many years have passed and him and Sarah get this idea it was Sarah's idea but he went with it maybe God wants you to have a child through my handmaid Hagar it was a sin it wasn't God's plan so it was unbelief that well we're going to help God out I guess this and I guess that instead of just hanging on to the promise, right? And he does it, and it was a sin, and it caused heartache, and it caused grief in the family. There were consequences to it. God still fulfilled the promise. He came back to the man and said, your wife, Sarah, out of her own bowels, is going to have a son. Don't get it confused. He made it more clear. And they did. But the point was that, that we saw that unbelief in that moment. That was a wavering, Right? and trying to help God out. We see pride and self-reliance again in David. Later in life, 
God had used them supernaturally in so many ways. And Israel given them so many victories over armies that were more in number and greater. And yet, when he got late in life, he says, Joey, I've got a number of my armies. I want to check. I want to know how many soldiers i got. I think we're getting big time. And Joab says, you don't, don't do this. Why is it in your heart to do this? The Lord multiplies your army. He makes them seem like they're way more than they are. You know, because he fights with us. And why would you want to do this? And he insisted upon doing it. And he did it. And as soon as he did it, the Lord smote him in the heart and he knew it was wrong. I mean, he knew before, but he, he was convicted about it. We see the denial of the Lord. Peter, who walked on water, who was uh, martyred for the Lord later in the, in, at the end of his life. But we saw him at the crucifixion denying the Lord. He had just picked up a sword and chopped off a servant's ear and was ready to die for the Lord. But then he got scared just literally a few hours later probably and denied the Lord three times. Uh, and so we see this in so many of the men and women of God, men and women of faith that are heroes of the faith. They are that. But the Lord allows us to see that to appear into their lives. Uh, though they were mighty men he, or mighty women, he, and they trusted in God and endured much for the Lord, they still are men. They're sinful men. All the descendants of Adam. For as by, uh, by the... Man's disobedience, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's Adam. So by the obedience, not of Moses or Abraham or David, so by the obedience of one, that's Jesus Christ, many were made righteous. All have Adam's sin nature, and only Christ can give us his new nature, the nature of God. The Bible says that we have been, as born-again believers, like we talked about in Sunday school, the Bible says we have been made partakers of His divine nature. That's not just a cleaning up your act a little bit. and That's not reformation, like a prison wants to reform the prisoners before they turn them loose. We'll teach them a hobby. You know, we'll teach them a craft. We'll teach them how to read. And all those things aren't bad. But they're not going to do what's needed to be done. And so, but the Lord did what needed to be done for us. We see it all through the scriptures, what we see is that they're all still men and not God. And only the Lord is God. I want to give more one more biblical example about this. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. Now Hezekiah, personally, we're going to read about King Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18, and you can just hold it there. He is one of my favorite kings. I've preached on him, I've taught about him, because uh, he took things from from a really bad state and turned it around. The Lord used him to, like morally and spiritually, okay? There was real, genuine revival in his day. There's not a whole lot of them in the Bible, but that was a real, genuine revival. Like they had in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah's day. One of those where it was really turned around. His father was King Ahaz. Not Ahaz, Ahaz with a Z. And Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings of Judah. Now, Israel normally is the one that had the bad kings. You know, when the kingdom was split, okay, Israel, most of their kings, just typically when you read about him, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. But in the Judah kings, most of them were pretty good, or good. But his dad, Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, was one of the worst. He was bad, 
and bad in the sense of like led people off away from God and into idolatry and the, the temple was uh, neglected and they had shut up the doors of the temple and the priesthood was pretty much like disbanded and it was not a good time spiritually for Judah. Alright, so here we see in, in chapter 18 we'll read uh, 1 through 3 and then we'll skip down a little. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, Hosea son of Eli, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty-five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years, so he reigned almost thirty years, in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, has done. Verse 4, I mean, verse 5, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that was before him. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. I mean, when you read that from the Lord, he's not saying it about himself. This is what the Bible is saying about him. He clave to the Lord. There wasn't a Judah king before or after him that was like him. And we're just reading a little bit. There's a few, several chapters about Hezekiah, okay? And uh, verse 7, the Lord was with him, and he prospered him wherever he went. And he rebelled, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. Now, I want to skip down to chapter uh, 20. Chapter yes, chapter 20. Move ahead to chapter 20. And this is later in his life. God's already given him a big victory over the Assyrians. And this is later in his life, and he had gotten sick. And this is, he lived in the days of Isaiah, okay? And Isaiah comes to King Hezekiah. He had a sickness he was going to die from, and he wept, and he turned his face to the wall, and, and, and uh, he kind of humbled himself before the Lord. And Isaiah went back and said, you're, you're going to live. And the Lord's added, I think, 14 years, 15 years to your life. And uh, so after this has happened, God adds 15 years to his life. And here comes some Babylonians to visit him. And the Babylonians showed up and said, Oh, we heard you were sick and that you recovered. We're just so happy for you. And so Hezekiah shows him everything. He takes him and shows him the treasures. And here's where our gold is. And here's where we keep our silver and how much we have. And here's how many soldiers I have. And here's our stockpile of ammunition. And here's where all our horse stays showing off like we're really set up here. And they leave. Well, we all know what happened with Babylon a short time later. And so Hezekiah, uh, I mean, Isaiah comes in and speaks to him. Let's pick up in verse uh, 19. Well, we'll pick up before that. Verse 14. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto Hezekiah and said, What said these men, and from whence came they unto thee? Hezekiah said, they've come from a far country, even Babylon. And he said, what have, you, what have they seen in thine house? Hezekiah answered, all the things that are in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures, treasures that I have not showed them. Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. He pronounces a judgment. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and all that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried away into Babylon. Nothing shall be left. Now, it wasn't all just Hezekiah's fault, okay? Because the nation of Israel continued to rebel, and God had promised this 
captivity was going to come. But you do get the idea from this that this was a sin. This was stupid and wrong and kind of prideful showing off on Hezekiah's part. And he said, there should be left nothing, saith the Lord. And thy sons shall be shall that issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Can you imagine? This is what's going to happen to your children, your boys. Then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord, which thou hast spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? It's almost like, okay, God's word's going to come to pass. It's good and true, but at least there'll be some tranquility in my days and some peace in my days. And I want to read what, you don't have to turn there, but later, uh, later, several chapters later, it speaks about Hezekiah in this regards, regards howbeit in the business of the ambassadors and the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done to the land, God left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. So in that passage we just read about them coming to talk to him, it says in that moment God sort of stood back and watched to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. It was a test. The test of what? His faith. And a test of, of maybe the purity of what was in his heart. And so that was a test. And God lets us see that in chapter after chapter. He talks about Hezekiah more than practically any of the kings in the Bible. Long chapter after chapter, all the wonderful things after wonderful things that he did. And, and I know he's with the Lord now today in heaven, but the Lord lets us see that in that moment, in that test, he failed. He failed. And it, it doesn't mean he's not a true follower of the Lord, okay? But when Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was tested and tempted in the wilderness, he was victorious. He was tempted, the Bible says, in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. And Jesus said that I do always those things that please my Father. And so we see such a difference. Always. He wasn't lying. He meant that. From the time he was born of a virgin, not with the nature of Adam and the sin nature of Adam, all the way through his earthly life I'm talking about, he sinned not. He's the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So King Hezekiah, as wonderful as he is, is a man here, a sinner. And I admire him and respect his faith in how God used him. But he's a man with a sin nature who needed a Savior. And the Savior is the Savior. And God wants us to show us, God wants to show us the difference. I'm going to read a few more. I got some really good scriptures I want to go to. I'm just going to give some examples. Uh, John and James. I picture John, the beloved, right? The apostle, the one with his head laying on Jesus' uh, bosom and so forth at the Last Supper. He and his brother at one time were arguing, or wanting to talk to Jesus, asking him, hey, Jesus, when we get to, you get to your kingdom, can we sit on your left and right hand? John, you know, we, you know no one of the other ten disciples to hear us. We're going to get a little secret deal here. We're close. When you get in your kingdom, me and James right here. That was them. At one point in Samaria, when the Samaritans said they didn't receive Jesus because his face was set to go to Jerusalem. This is right before he died. He had purposely knew he was going there. 
They said they didn't receive him. John and James, Lord, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy him like Elijah did? He said, are you kidding me? You don't know what manner of you know, spirit you're of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy lives, but save lives. And so we see sin, or faults, or failures, or humanity, or weakness in these men's lives. John the Baptist, he's the one saying, Behold, the Lamb of God points to Jesus. He baptizes him. The next day, Jesus came again. He said the same thing. Behold, the Lamb of God. He knew it was the Lord. Yet when he was thrown in prison and his faith faltered, maybe just for a moment. I know John's with the Lord now. But he sent some of his disciples from prison. You go ask Jesus, are you the one that's to come or do we look for another? Wow. John the Baptist is at that moment kind of questioned why because of his circumstance he's in prison and it's not like he maybe thought it would be the Lord didn't show him all that part when he said you're going to be the messenger in the wilderness but we see that and the Lord lets us see it we see the Lord the, uh, Peter denying the Lord we see Peter uh, in Antioch when he wouldn't when he separated himself from the Gentile Christians and wouldn't eat with them anymore because he was afraid of the Jewish Christians that had come down from Jerusalem that they might not approve of it. And so it caused a big hypocrisy, and Paul had to rebuke him to his faith. That's Peter, this rock, okay? And, and the Lord says, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he does, did love the Lord, but we see those sins. We see uh, King Jehoshaphat, who was a good king, and he made friends with King Ahab, a wicked king of Israel. And I just want to read this. When Ahab had... Uh, Jehoshaphat, who was a good king of Judah, joined himself with King Ahab. We, we know Ahab and Jezebel, that whole story. A wicked king, and they fought a common enemy together, and they win the battle, and after they come back, the Bible says, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, Hanani the seer, went out to meet him. So a prophet goes to meet him and says to King Jehoshaphat, Should thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Wow. Therefore is wrath upon thee from before before the before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves of the land and prepared thine heart to seek God. There were good things in his heart, but there was a judgment that was going to come and a punishment. Here again, a good king, a godly king. And I want you to see the difference that the Lord has given Jesus Christ a name above every name. There's not Jehoshaphat that compares. Hezekiah is not a close second. Moses isn't a close second. Abraham, Peter, John, John the Baptist. None of them. All of them stacked up on top of each other. And, and But Jesus has a name that's above all names. And I want to close, names, I want to close with, with a few thoughts. Samuel's son, Samuel, the priest and the prophet, his sons didn't serve God. I mean, there's failures in their lives. Um, we just see that Noah got drunk, as I said, after the flood. But I want you to look at one, one thought right here. We're going to read in Luke chapter 9, in just a few more passages. This, to me, really, really sums it up. This account is given in three of the Gospels. We're going to read it out of two of them, basically. Luke chapter 9, we're going to start in verse... 27. But I tell you the truth, Jesus said, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. 
It came to pass about an eight days after these things, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So talking about Jesus' death, what's about to take place. And Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him, so Elijah and Moses depart, go back to heaven. Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, you ever done that? Not really knowing what you said? Uh, while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found out alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which he had seen. Peter says, I want to make three tabernacles. We're going to make one for you, Lord. We're going to make one for Elijah. And we're going to make one for Moses. It's a good thing. We're going to make three remembrances, some kind of little memorial, statues or something. We're going to make three. And the Bible says that God spoke, uh-uh. This is my son. Hear him. The other two men went back up to heaven, and then when the cloud was lifted up, they said Jesus was left alone. Okay? Let's look at the same story from another account. I want to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 17. We're not going to read the whole thing. Let's just read verses 5 and 8 specifically. Matthew 17, 5, and then skip down to 8. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Verse 8. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And I'm just going to read it to you from Mark. It's in Mark as well. Chapter 9, 7 and 8. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And suddenly when they looked round about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. And I can tell you, when you're in a tight place or where you're in a prison cell or where you're somewhere or you've got, you've got a bad report about a sickness from the doctor or whatever, it's going to be Jesus. Jesus alone. We have godly people in our life. I thank God for them. There's a comfort that we receive, but really it's going to come down to the Lord being with you. You're in the workplace and something happens. You're offended or you get fired or you get whatever happens. It's going to be Jesus that's with you. And, and the Lord wants it to be that way. He wants to set apart the Lord from all others. Okay? He wants it to be that way. He wants us to clearly see Him and know others. What is He saying? And what do we say in this sermon? I'm about to close. But the Lord is saying, hear Him. Look to Him. <coughs> Trust in Him, lest you follow Him. John the Baptist said, I must decrease, and He, and he must increase. I must decrease. And, and what did the Lord say about John? He's the greatest prophet born of women. There's not a greater than John. Nevertheless, 
He that's least in the kingdom of heaven or of God is greater than he. And John says of himself, I've got a decrease. And when Jesus came on the scene, he, he sent his disciples going off with the Lord now. He's come. You don't need to follow me anymore. He's here. He's come. The one that I've been telling you about is here. And that's humility. That's a good way to be. Send them on off with him. And so the Bible says, look to him, wait upon him, love him, worship him. Uh, I'm going to read just this scripture. John, the beloved, it, it says in chapter 22, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. John, the beloved, who had walked with the Lord three and a half years, I fell down at the feet of the angel to worship him, the one that showed me these things. Then said he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the, the sayings of this book. Worship God. Okay? Worship God. I know this is a simple thought this morning, but we see it over and over in the Bible. God at various times in diverse manners spake unto our fathers in time past by the prophets, says, In these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has made heir of all things, by whom he created the worlds. It's Jesus. And so there's one God, there's one Savior. All the laws and the prophets pointed to the Lord, and there's no other. And there's no compare. And God wants to be sure of this. The best of men are still men. The best of men are still men. Okay? He's not an angel. He's not like the Mormons say. There's a little saying, and I might misquote it, but I'm close. I'm going to paraphrase. The Mormons have a saying that as God is, man once was, as as man, uh, all right, as God is, man, no, I'll get it. As man is, God once was. As God is, man will one day become, or something. That's not true. This, we can be born again, like we talked about in Sunday school, and be a partaker of His divine nature, but He's always going to be God, and I will always be created, a created being by God, who worships Him, him joyfully and totally at peace and content and overjoyed in the presence of God. He's also allowed us to be joint heirs with Jesus, the Father has but the point is, there's that gulf there that's never going to be crossed. He stands alone. He reigns alone. He's the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's Him. Amen. We saw grace in others, you know, and the grace of God manifest in others, but He's full of grace Amen. and truth. His Bible says His own right arm has gotten Him the victory. Isaiah 63, I have trodden the, trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. It was me. I'm your Savior. I don't need you to help me. I'm going to bring about all, everything that this Bible says right here, and I'm going to bring it to pass. I've got it. You trust me. You look to me. I'm coming back on a white horse, and you're coming back with me. You understand what I'm saying? It's awesome. It's wonderful. Napoleon said, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus was no mere man. He wasn't even a believer. From what I've read, Charlemagne built his empire upon might and conquest. He said, Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Jesus Christ is separate from all others. Dear, who's leading the altar? If you would come at this time, y'all, we're going to have at this time an altar. As you're praying, i got another scripture I want to read, but I want this to be our altar time. We get along, the, along with the Lord and just worship Him. He's better. He stands alone. I thank God for Moses. I thank God for Hezekiah. I thank God for Daniel and the examples of their faith and integrity. 
and, and how they hung in there, and how they and all these things about them. But the Lord is the Lord, and our, we need to be preoccupied and occupied with the Lord and in Him alone. And so our altars are open, Father. We just come before you right now in the mighty name of Jesus. And, and just like on the Mount of Transfiguration, you said. No, this is my beloved Son in whom I will please. Hear Him. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead oddly. That doesn't all dwell in me. Christ dwells in me. But in Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That was your plan. That's your purpose. That's who you are. And you're wanting to show yourself and your Son. Father, you're wanting to show your Son as being mighty, almighty, as being God in the flesh, as being the risen Lord and Savior, as being the Alpha and the Omega. He has no compare. He has no rival. You said, look unto me and be saved. And besides me, there is no Savior. And we look to you this morning, not only to save us eternally of our sins, but to save us day by day from the corruption that's in the world, from our own flesh, from our own temptations that come our way in our lives, God. We look to you, God. You're the author and the finisher of our faith. Moses is not the author and the finisher of my faith, God. You are. And I look to you, Lord. And we look to you this morning. This church is looking to you. We're a young church, God. We got mature believers, but we're still a young church, God. That you've birthed right here. And you've done it. It's a work of God. We didn't do it. You did it. But we're looking to you, God. We're going to look to you every day. We're not looking to each other and say, I'm going to find my answer in Buck or, or Reynolds or Stephen. I'm, I'm looking unto Jesus. And we're going to keep our eyes upon you, Lord God. And you're going to help us and you're going to prosper us, Lord God. While you're praying and worshiping the Lord, just take some time. We're in no hurry this morning. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, Peter said. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. Paul and Peter saying, look, it's Him. We saw His honor and majesty and glory. And, and it's all about Him. And God, we just love you this morning. Anything else that's crept up to rival you, even in our own minds, our hearts, God, we cast it down, put it in its right place, put it in its proper place. There are good things and good people that we are to esteem, but don't let us esteem them out of proportion. Lord, you're far beyond. You're far beyond. It's an immeasurable gulf. We can't measure it. You're uncreated and eternal God, and you're created sinful men, saved by your grace, God, and your mercy. And we love you, and we trust you. And like the angel told John in Revelation, see thou doest not, don't worship me, you worship God. And Lord, we are worshipers of God this morning. We love you, and we thank you, God. In Jesus' name, help us, Lord.